It's good to see you here. We're glad that you've chosen to be with us on this kind of rainy first weekend of fall morning. If you're in Kimmo, you guys can head on out. I think we've got a bunch of folks out of town today. I don't know. I don't think I know Scott and Karen went to Florida. I'm not real sure why. Uh, they're having they're expecting hurricanes, but they decided to go to Florida. So, um, yeah, they don't have enough drama, so they need some more, I guess. But uh, it, it's good to be with you. And um, I'm, if you're a guest, we are happy that you're here with us today. Uh, we're wrapping up our study of Genesis today, and I'm going to be honest. We're covering like half of the rest. Like Genesis 1 through 11 um, was written after Genesis 12 through 50. Genesis 12 through 50. Uh, is very much the story of Abraham and his family and is really introducing us. It's kind of an introduction to the rest of the story. But as we've seen, it kind of also gives us the foundation to understand any of the story. So, uh, But we're, we're going to cover about 15 chapters today. So do you all have plans today? Um, you do? Okay, we'll lower the lights and let you all slip out um, about 3 o'clock today. No, actually, we're going to go through pretty quickly. Um, but I, I'm, I'm going to be sharing, I, I'm basically going to be reading a lot of the story, but I'm going to be reading it a little different way than you've probably read this story before. Uh, we've covered the life of Abram. We've, uh, these are the patriarchs. So their wives are incredibly important, but according to history, the patriarchs, um, the story has been handed down through Abraham. So we look at Abraham and then the successive lineage throughout their lives. So we've talked about Abraham. We've talked about Isaac. We've talked about Jacob. And today we're going to talk about Joseph. But the problem with talking about Joseph is that this story is not just about Joseph. In fact, the story is about Joseph and it's also about one of Joseph's sons. And you'll see that that son pops up several times. Not Joseph's son, but uh, Jacob's another son, Joseph's brother, that's going to pop up several times throughout this story. So in order for us to get to a close today, um, I want us to cover that story. And I'm just going to read parts of it. So if you are not familiar with the story of Joseph, we talked pretty extensively about him not too long ago, and you can go back and watch that on our website. Um, So we're not going to really go deep into all that happened in Egypt, even though the story of Joseph in Egypt sets up the Exodus story that is the next book in the Torah. Uh, It sets it up because it explains why all of Israel is now in um, Egypt, and that sets up a rescue that is necessary for Moses. Um, so there's a part of this rest of the story that I want to share with you today that is absolutely going to set us up if you want to continue on in Exodus. And I'm going to be honest, I'm already, next week we start a new series, I'm going to introduce it at the end. I'm already wishing we could jump right into Exodus, to be honest, but we're not. Um, we've got some other things to talk about first. We'll come back and do Exodus another time. Um, but I do want to, before we jump into this, thank you for your prayers and your messages. And we uh, had Dad's funeral last weekend. I appreciate Jimmy jumping in and teaching. And I understand he he underwent several challenges and still pulled through well. So we're thankful for him. Um, And so if you missed that, you can go back and watch it. We've had some issues with our live stream. We're not real sure why. Uh, We've got plenty of bandwidth, but the the recording seems to be skipping a little bit. So if you're going back and watching these and you're wondering what's going on, we're not real sure. We're trying to figure that out. Um, so they're a little, they're skipping a little bit more. The, the audio is a little off. We've got to get that figured out. But go back and catch up if you need to do that. Um, next week, uh, we're jumping in, and we're also kind of starting our fall off, which we should be about two months earlier into what we're going to start with next week. 
but I, I've been down a little bit, and uh, so um, I do appreciate all of your, just your, your thoughts and your, your prayers and, and messages and understanding, and some of you have been trying to get together with for a while, and we keep putting it off, so I'm looking forward to doing that, um, especially those of you who are new to Journey, and I just want to get to know you. Uh, but we're, we're jumping in. Next week, uh, it's time to get moving. And I met with our staff this week and just said, okay, I, it's time to start moving. We need, we've got some things we need to do. Um, so I'm going to introduce a little bit of that later. And uh, I want to just tell you that for my personal journey of faith, uh, the reason we're going through Genesis like this, so I grew up in the church. I went to seminary after college. Um, I have several seminary degrees. I exited seminary, started ministry, and about uh, a good two or three years into ministry, I grew very disenchanted with the church. I'll just be open with you. Um, I, I knew the programs. I knew the things you're supposed to do. I was teaching them. Uh, you know, they're, uh, you know, embarrassing to say when I came in, I felt like I was God's gift to whatever church would have me as pastor. And... So it became very evident, and they let me know very quickly that was not the case. But um, I just grew weary of church. Uh, And so, you know, it became a series of things I had to do. We wanted to make sure we went to church enough. We wanted to make sure uh, we we read our Bible enough. We prayed enough. We gave enough. We did all the things. But, you know, you can do all of the right things in church and still feel like this is empty. And me, as a pastor, I began to feel this way. Um, I learned a lot of things about how to grow a church. Then we started to plant a church, and I learned a whole bunch, bunch of other things to plant to grow a church. And I began to discover some of the very things that we use to grow churches today actually don't lead people to feel like God is active in their life. We can get them to come to church. We can get them to get baptized and to attend our Bible studies and and give and build organizations. But I began to realize in my own life, those things actually led me to a place of emptiness where I felt like what I really want is to see God and have God do something amazing in the world. I don't have to be a part of it. I don't have to be um, the one who's doing it. Um, I want to just experience God in a very real way. And along the way, I discovered some of the things we did to grow churches um, actually led you away from experiencing God in this way. And now that we're, we're experiencing this great decline within the church, and, I mean, you can't go anywhere. If you're and all tuned in to Christian publishing, you probably get five to ten emails a week, if not more, telling you that the church is in decline and what you need to do to grow your church again. And most of those things are wrong. They're just wrong. They're the very things that led us to the place where we're at because people don't walk away from God when they've experienced Him. They walk away from God when we've placed him on a platter and said, this is what he is. And if you want to experience him, come to all our stuff and you'll experience him. When that is our gospel, people walk away because they're like, you know what? I still don't experience God. I don't, I don't think this is real. So what I'm going to share with you today is the way that I think we need to read Joseph. Um, there, you're going to find that there's one, there's two brothers that are highly important in this story, but one of them keeps making an appearance. And you might ask yourself, why does this brother up in Joseph's story, because the story is about Joseph. There's a reason. And then at the end, I want to wrap everything up that we've talked about in these 17 weeks. And we're going to do all of that. What time is it? 10.55 and 35 minutes, right? <laughs> Give or take. 
35, 40 extra minutes. I don't know. Hopefully not. Um, so uh, in order to be able to accomplish all of these things today, I really just want to do a lot of reading. And there are a few things I want to interject, a few things I want to explain. But other than that, I want you to see the story because the story is the thing that makes God real in our lives. And just to give you uh, an indicator of where I'm going with all of this that I've just said, most of the time our experience in faith in the modern Western world is figuring out how to get God to be a part of our story. But God doesn't work that way. We can do everything we can to try to get God to be a part of our story. But God becomes a part of our story when we enter into His. And if our first goal is not to know what the story is, enter into his story, the reality is, is we can go a lifetime of church activity and never fully experience his work in our lives. But at this stage of my life, that's what I want. And I believe if you're here, that's what you want. And so let's talk about how that happens here, because if you are frustrated, this is for you. If you have been doing church your whole life and you're like, I'm just not sure, this is for you. If you're ready to go to the next level in your faith walk with Christ, this is for you. And if you think that you're a person that I don't care what you say today, I'm not good enough. God is not going to enter my story. This is absolutely for you. Okay? All right. Are we ready? We're going to be in Genesis. We're going to begin with chapter 37. We're going to go through Genesis chapter 50. And I want us to begin and remember the four themes in Abraham's life that we followed throughout this these uh, this study. And I also want you to remember that learning in the ancient Near Eastern world is about exploring and discovering. It is not about me just telling you the answer and now you have the answer because that eventually, like you don't care about that. Like nobody wants to just have the answer. It's like you want to see something that's life-changing. So I want you to be looking and listening for these themes throughout the story that we're going to have for Joseph and particularly in the life of Judah. Um, But the four themes that we've seen so far in his life was that Abram was willing to put others before himself, and we saw that over and over again. And that follows right along with Jesus saying, the second greatest commandment is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. Be willing to sacrifice and invest in others. There is a part of every person who experiences God that is either experience a calling towards something to experience him, or they're in the midst of their life learning what it looks like to place others at least, if not above themselves, at least on the same plane as themselves, and they start putting others before themselves, and they're willing to sacrifice. Once you begin to do that, you begin, something begins to happen within you. A transformation begins to happen in the way you think, in the way you see, in the way you do, and eventually you'll recognize, God is doing something in me. I may not even recognize it at the beginning, but now I do. Um, Abram was willing to do something, who would eventually be called Abraham, was willing to do, put others before himself. The second thing, he was willing to follow God and at the same time be rescued. So we're going to see a rescue in our story today as well. There is a place where when we follow God and we experience him in our story, we come to a place of needing a rescue. If we don't need a rescue, we don't ever actually submit to God. I, like if I don't really need God, but he can, is helpful I will approach him very differently than if I'm in need of a rescue, and I believe he's the only one that can do it. All right, the third thing we're going to see, or we've seen throughout this, is that Abram was willing to learn from his mistakes. 
Uh, praise the Lord. God still uses people who make mistakes and he allows us to learn from them. And then the fourth thing that we've seen over and over and over again is God is faithful even when we are not. And depending on how you grew up in the church, if you grew up in a place saying God is faithful when you are faithful, then you have always been on a very tentative relationship with God thinking, as long as I don't mess up, I'm good. But if once I mess up, I'm bad. So we're going to look at that through this story. We're beginning begin with Genesis chapter 37, beginning with verse 2. And I forgot to put a graphic in. Did, did that graphic ever make it in? It didn't make it in? Okay, that's all right. I forgot to put it in, and I ran it up there, and I was like, hey, I forgot to put this in. That's okay. It's not that important. I'll explain it to you. Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, two other wives of Jacob, uh, his father's wives. Oh. It says that. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father, which is what little brothers do. Brought a bad report to their father. And um, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. My graphic was basically a family tree of Jacob who would eventually be renamed Israel. And in the story of Jacob, um, you know, if we follow through all that happened to him, he went and he fell in love with Rachel. Um, he ended up get, being betrayed by his father-in-law and ended up marrying Leah. He had to work another seven years in order to marry Rachel. He ended up with two more wives. So Jacob now has four wives Again, as we've talked in the past, this is not God's plan. <laughs> Sometimes we read these things and we're like, well, Jacob did it, and Jacob's like a man of faith. So I guess I could go have four wives. I think, one, you don't practically believe that's actually a good thing. And number two, God is faithful even when we are not, right? So Jacob, was he, he messed up more than he did right. Uh, and and it's, God was still faithful because God is telling a bigger story than just Jacob's story. Um, but he is still using Jacob. Anyways, he has four wives. There are two sons that become the favored of Jacob. And if you remember the story, Jacob learned that you can favor a child by his father. Because <laughs> as you remember, Jacob was the favorite of his mother and Esau was the favorite um, of his father. And so that's also incredibly unhealthy. If you left Sunday thinking, um, you know what? I do have a favorite child, and I'm going to let them know that. Please don't tell anybody you learned that at Journey. That is a very bad way of parenting, and it will backfire really bad. So, um, you know, we see that they do bad things. When, when people who have done good things do bad things, it does not mean that the bad things are good. Marrying four women is not God's plan. And we go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we see this is not God's plan but he does now the reason i wanted to show you the family tree is because there are two brothers that are favored by jacob they are joseph and who's the other one somebody's got to know benjamin guess whose mother is the only one that has two boys guess who the mother of joseph and benjamin is somebody it's rachel which is his favorite wife like Jacob is a big screw up, okay? He is a big screw up. And I, and I love that one of the things that, that uh, Jimmy focused on last week was his willingness to wrestle with God because sometimes it is a necessary part and we actually see that as his virtue, a virtue of Jacob who would eventually become Israel. 
But he has this terrible... We, we have the, uh, the story of Jacob and Esau reconciling. And Jacob's not real sure about like, uh, I want to go reconcile with my brother. I've been running scared my whole life now because I stole the birthright. And, and, you know, but but I want to go reconcile. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my least favorite people in the family first in case like Esau goes off and kills everybody. So he puts Leah up front, right? He's a terrible guy. And he puts Leah up front and he, you know, and puts some of his stuff with Leah. And then, you know, like Rachel's like right before him. And then Jacob's in the very back of the line. So if Esau goes on a murderous rampage to kill everybody, like it, Jacob's thinking, I can at least run away. I mean, I'll sacrifice her. He's like, he's got issues. If you have issues, welcome to the human race. He had issues. And if you believe that God cannot use someone with issues, you've not been listening to this story. Because we all have issues, and Jacob had great issues. Well, the two brothers that are part of this story, that are an integral part of this story, are the sons that he has with his favorite wife, Rachel. That is one of the important things you need to understand to understand what's going to happen in the rest of the story. All right, let's continue. Um, and then we come to verse 5, and Joseph has not really grown up yet. He's 17, he's not really grown up. He has this dream, and this is how um, he continues to degrade in his relationship with his stepbrothers. All right? Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheave arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dream and for his words. Like, if you have that dream, keep it to yourself. All right? Don't go to work tomorrow and say, I had a dream. And you all answer to me from now on. Don't do that. It's probably going to go similarly for you. Then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers. And he said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. There's 12 brothers. So, you know, 11 stars bowing down to me. But when he told it to his, bro- his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow yourself to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, we will find out later that these dreams are actually going to come true. He did not make these up. Joseph wasn't trying to just lord over his brothers we find that this exact scenario is going to happen in Egypt. But nobody wants to hear that they're going to bow down to you. Like nobody wants to hear that, even if it is in fact going to happen. This part of the story is here to show us why the brothers hated him so much. And Joseph and Benjamin are among the youngest of the brothers. And as we have seen throughout this story, the firstborn is the one that is most important in the story to carry on the lineage. They get a double portion of the inheritance, a double portion of the estate, a double portion of the responsibility to carry on the family lineage. The firstborn is the one that typically the story follows, which is why the story of Jacob and Esau was so important. But now Joseph enters the story as the 11th youngest. The first one, does anybody know who the oldest brother is? 
not Judah. It's Reuben. That's going to come back in the story in a few minutes. It should go from Abram to Isaac. It should have then gone to Esau, but instead it went to Jacob because Esau didn't want it and sold his birthright. So it goes to Jacob. So the story should have gone, even with the Esau-Jacob debacle, it should have gone Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Reuben. Our next story in Genesis should be about Reuben based on how lineage follows in um, ancient Near Eastern history. However, Reuben is mentioned, but he is a very minor part of this story. There's a reason for that. So they go on, and the brothers get angry, and they're mad at Joseph, and they're jealous of Joseph. And so then the brothers decide, you know what we need to do? We need to kill him. And this is what Genesis chapter 37, verse 18 says. It says, he's coming out to them. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say what a fierce animal that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. Now, Jewish tradition tells us that the person who says this is Simeon, okay, his brother Simeon. We'll come back to Simeon later in this story. It's an interesting twist towards the end of the story, but he's the one who said, "Let's kill him," and then. Some of the brothers get on board with that. All of them seem to get on board with it. But then the story begins to take a turn and the real story begins to emerge. All right. In verse 21, it says, but when Reuben, oldest, firstborn, responsible for the family lineage, responsible for the other brothers, responsible to dad. At this point, Reuben is carrying on the tradition of Abraham. But Reuben heard it. He rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his uh, brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and... They took uh, him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Now, if you're following along on the Baymont podcast with us, um, what you have learned when um, it actually comes from Rabbi Foreman, who is often referenced in the podcast, is that his coat in the original Hebrew doesn't actually mean a coat of many colors. It's a striped coat. And the significance of the coat was not that he had a striped coat, because lots of people had striped coats at the time. That what was important was this would have been a second coat for him, and none of the other brothers would have had a second coat. So not only in his coat, but likely in other things in his life, Jacob is showing his favoritism of Joseph by giving him extra, 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 showing him that he is my favorite and none of the rest of you. So this is his second coat. But when they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him 
to the Ishmaelites. So now we have a second brother who makes an appearance in this story. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now at some point, Reuben, who has already come to his rescue, has left, and he comes back. And he picks up the story again in verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brother and said, his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? This is the firstborn. He's responsible for these brothers and he knows dad really likes Joseph and now they've lost him. He is not happy. And, but at this point we see two brothers that are actually trying to do the right thing even if the right thing actually would have been to say, no, we're not going to kill him. I mean, he's our brother. He's going back with us. We're not doing any of this stuff. But they're trying to save his life at this point. Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So Reuben and Judah are both wanting to rescue Joseph. And they're swept up into this problem. And instead of doing what needs to be done, they take the easy way out, still rescuing him, but essentially sentencing him to a life of slavery. Simeon's the ringleader, according to tradition, trying, and all the other brothers are like, hey, we don't, I mean, we're not, we're not the firstborn and we don't like him anyways. And I'm not bowing down to him and we're not putting up with this. We'll just kill him and we'll cover it up and dad will never know. And then, Hey, he'll get dad too. Because if you grow up knowing that you're not the favored child, your relationship with that parent is affected. It is affected no matter what. So Judah's the one who wants to sell him to Egypt. And then we kind of come to the rest of the story, which I want to do kind of a, a quick, big swath. Because the very next part of your story, if you go to the very next page in your Bible, is not about Joseph. It is about Judah. Now, Judah's not the firstborn. Judah doesn't go down and create the environment for which Exodus is going to be written. Why is Judah in this? Why do we care about Judah at this point? In fact, we may even be at this point thinking, like, maybe we need another flood. I, I mean, the story is so convoluted now. What God's trying to do has been so messed up at this point. I mean, yeah, we've seen some redeeming features here and there, But good grief, like this is a mess. How can God possibly bring anything out of this mess? Well, let's remember our four themes and keep listening. Where do we see these themes in this story? If God is faithful, even when we're unfaithful, what is God looking for in us, us, out of us, when we mess up? So we have this story of Judah 
Judah goes on and is trying to live a fairly decent life, even though he has covered up uh, his brother's selling into slavery as well. He gets married. He has kids. Somewhere along the way, Judah's wife dies. We don't know why she dies, but Judah's wife dies. But one of his sons, before she dies, um, one of his sons grows up to be the age to marry, which would have been like, you know, 16 or something like that. He's at the age to marry. And so he goes and he finds him a wife and her name is Tamar. You're probably familiar with her name, Tamar. And so Tamar comes and is going to get married to Ur, the son of Judah. And the text tells us that Ur is just a terrible guy. Like he treats her bad. He does all kinds of evil. Like he doesn't get God's story at all. He's not trying to put anybody above himself. It's all about Ur. And he just hurts people. He's just a terrible guy. And Tamar is just stuck. Like she's now married to this guy and he's just a terrible guy. So eventually Ur dies. And if you remember our story of Sarai, she needed a kinsman redeemer, which is why she ended up marrying Abraham. Abraham chose to be her kinsman redeemer, even knowing she was barren. And as the firstborn, his lineage would be cut off. That was our introduction that Abraham cared about other people more than himself. And so she now is in need of a kinsman redeemer, which means what's supposed to happen is one of Ur's brothers should come and help her have children which is a practice I'm very thankful we don't do today. But he would go and they would end up having kids and it would kind of salvage his lineage and give her a life and give her children to take care of her. And the story tells us that his brother goes and is happy to sleep with her, but he will not impregnate her. You can go read the story yourself if you want more. So eventually Judah says, knowing that Tamar needs a kinsman redeemer, he says, go to your father's house and stay there. Just go and stay, and eventually I'll have another son that will be your kinsman redeemer. But he's not old enough. He's not of marrying age yet. But just go stay there. When he's old enough, um, you can marry him, which I'm sure she was super excited about that prospect. After all she's been through so far, two brothers have been pretty rotten. I'm not sure I want a third. And along the way, Judah's wife dies. And Judah is, at that point, um, he's kind of losing his way. And it says he went into this town, into the town in which Tamar was living with her father. And Tamar dresses up like she's a prostitute. And Judah walks up and is like, hey, how are you doing? And she covers her face, and he doesn't know who it is. And she says, I will sleep with you if you will give me your cord, and you will give me your staff, and you will give me your signet. If you will give those to me, I will sleep with you. And he's like, okay, because that's what men do when they are thinking with that part of their body, right? Sure, here you go, right? Eventually he does, and he leaves, and he sends his servant to go collect all those things from Tamar. And she says, no, I won't give them back. Judah says, fine, you can keep them. I can can get new ones. And then a story comes back to Judah and says, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been immoral in the town in which you have sent her to live. And so he goes to investigate and says, what is this thing in which you have done? And Tamar then reveals, yes, I was immoral with you. You were the one. Oh, no, it wasn't me. Because, you know, men take responsibility in this situation so readily. And she says, here's your signet. Here's your cord. Here's your staff. 
Now, why is this story important? Why is this story in here? Like, if you're trying to create an origin story for Judaism, like, we want to leave this part out, right? When you get together at a family reunion, you know what you don't want is somebody go, hey, Judah, tell us the story of Tamar again. Like, those aren't the stories you tell at family reunions. Why in the world is that in this story? And we could just have jumped right over to Joseph. And yet when Judah is faced with his sin, this is what Judah says in chapter 28 verse, or 38, verse 24. He says, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned, because that was the punishment. And she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. <laughs> and she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judify identified them and he said this. He said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, who is who he, that was the younger son who he was going to give her to. And he did not know her again. So he didn't do it again. Didn't sleep with her again. She's already pregnant. Ends up she's going to have twins as well. So, But that was kind of the end of his role as kinsman redeemer. The thing that we see in Judah, and the reason I think this story is here, is Judah makes moral sacrifice after moral sacrifice throughout his life until he comes to a moment where he has to face his sin and he has to say no more. I will take responsibility for my actions... And he, in this moment, recognizes, here is a woman I have done wrong. Not only did I do wrong, I said she should be burned when that punishment should have been for me too. And even though we only have one verse here, what we see is a turn in Judah. And we're going to see it again later in this story. We see a turn in Judah where he's recognizing, I've made a mistake. Now, does that sound like one of our four themes? So Paul's shaking his head, yes. Everyone else is falling asleep. So I'm going to have to be more animated or something. Yes, it is one of our themes. Why is Judah a part of this story? Do we see one of our four themes in the story of Judah? Or even more than one? Let's continue the story. We've got to jump ahead again. Joseph becomes successful in Egypt. He's a servant to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. Um, it says that he becomes um, second only to Potiphar, a wealthy servant of Pharaoh. And even to the point where Potiphar no longer actually has to work anymore. Potiphar just, like, Joseph does it all. And then Potiphar's wife takes notice of Joseph. And interestingly in the story, um, she says, I want to sleep with you. And he's like, no, I don't want to sleep with you. And um, she tricks him, and she grabs his robe, and he runs out and leaves his robe, which is interesting. We don't have time for this. But the, the parallels here with his robe, like his robe is like its own character in this story. We don't have time for this. But he leaves his robe, and he runs, and he gets put in prison. And then we have this interesting story where Joseph's in prison with these other employees that have done something wrong. And they're like, we had these dreams. Can anyone interpret these dreams? And... Joseph's like, oh, I can. And he interprets their dreams. And one of them, he says, you're going to be restored and everything's going to be great. And But you, like your head's going to be cut off. And sorry, I mean, that's just a dream. 
But for the one who was going to be restored, he said, please don't forget me. When you go to Pharaoh, tell him what I did, and I can interpret dreams, because this is like a valuable skill in the kingdom, and I would really like to not be in prison anymore. And so it happens exactly the way he says. One's head is beheaded, one is restored. The one who's restored is so happy he's restored, he forgets all about Joseph, never says a thing, he stays in prison. Until Pharaoh has another dream, and he has this crazy dream about these cows, and like some of the cows eat some of the other cows, and some are fat and some are lean, and it's just really weird dream, and no one knows has any idea what this dream is about until the one who had been restored says, oh, wait a minute, I know somebody who interpreted one of my dreams. Maybe he can interpret yours. And so he goes down and he interprets the dream, and the dream is basically this. The interpretation is basically this. Uh, We're coming into another famine, and the famine is also something that has been in our story in and out throughout Genesis 12 through 50. When there's a famine, people come to Egypt. Why? Because of the river Nile. It's fertile. They can grow food. There is water. And even when there's a drought, uh, there is more um, there to feed you. And so people go down. You know, Abraham went down um, in the midst of a famine to Egypt. Um, We know that... um, Isaac, there was another famine, and he wanted to go to Egypt, and God said, no, 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 do not go to Egypt this time. And now we have another famine in which Joseph is interpreting the dream, knowing people are going to have to come to Egypt during this time. And he says, it's going to be seven years of, of just prosperous time for us to grow and to store and to prepare. And then there's going to be seven years of famine, and we need to store up to be ready to withhold, withstand the famine, especially when all the people come wanting all the stuff And Pharaoh says, that's amazing. Yes, let's do that. And now you are in charge of everything second only to me. And it feels like the story is now about Joseph again, isn't it? Like, that's a pretty big deal. But what if the story is really not about Joseph? What if it's really some, there's another thread that's more important than this thread? This is a historical thread, important thread. It explains why Israel's in Egypt, why they're enslaved. Um, and we've seen time and time again that, that Egypt is going to give their wealth to Israel. And we've seen it with Abraham, and we've seen it with um, Isaac, and we're seeing it, uh, we're going to see it with Moses. Um, we see that common thread. But what if the story is not really about that? What if that, that kind of historicity of how they got and got stuck in Egypt is, is there just to tell us a part of the story? But the thing we're supposed to learn, kind of like the center of the chiasm, the thing we're supposed to learn is something more subtle, something we've got to look for, something we've got to dig for, something we've got to understand the story and then look for ourselves in that story. What if that's what's going on here? Because you can probably guess, I think it is. The point is not really about Joseph. Because most of us are not going to be Joseph. Most of us aren't going to, Uh, be put in charge of all this stuff and now we're going to go rescue whole nations like that's really not going to be our story our story is going to be more like these other brothers famine comes in and we jump down to genesis chapter 42 so we're making big jumps now to verse one and it says when jacob learned that there was grain for sale in egypt he said to his sons why do you look at one another and he said behold i have heard that there's grain for sale in egypt wonder why Joseph, their lost brother, is the one who's orchestrated this plan to have it available for sale. And he said, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Okay, 10 brothers go down. Who's not going? 
And who else is not going? Trick question. Joseph. All the rest of the brothers are going. Jacob still has his favorites. Joseph's gone, now it's Benjamin. Important part of the story too. Um, Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now at this point of the story, Joseph knows that Simeon has told him to get put down into a well and is calling for his head, and the other brothers are all in on it, except that Reuben said that Let's do the pit and not kill him. And then Judah is the one who says, well, let's sell him and and not leave him here. And let's make a little money off of him. This is what he knows. He knows nothing else. The rest of that story goes that they took his coat, they tore it, they dipped it in animal's blood and said an animal killed Joseph. They don't have DNA, DNA testing at the time. And he says, all this blood is not the animal we dipped it in. It's your son, Joseph. He got devoured, but here's his coat that you gave him that you didn't give any of us. Joseph doesn't know any of this stuff. Joseph knows his story up to this moment. And one of the questions that Marty Solomon asked, which I'm not going to ask, you can go and struggle with this, um, is um, who does Joseph at this point identify more as his father? Abraham, who never came looking for him? Because he doesn't know he thinks he's dead. He just knows, not Abraham, Jacob who never came looking for him? Or is it Pharaoh, who has put him in second of command over all things, and Pharaoh is everyone's father? Who is it? We saw with Isaac, uh, with Abraham sacrificing Isaac, that God was actually testing him to say, will you follow my story, or will you follow the story of all the gods around you that sacrifice children? Because I will never ask you to sacrifice a child. And it is a turning point for Abraham to say, I reject the gods of all those around me. Yahweh is my God. My God will not ask me to sacrifice my child. We see these stories that are stacking up, telling this bigger story of God revealing himself to all those that are around him. And it would be very easy for Joseph just to embrace Egypt again. And, re- and reject Yahweh. Reject his father, therefore reject the God of his father. Anyways, next part of the story. The brothers come down, and Jacob puts them through a series of tests. We're down to verse uh, 8 in chapter 42. And as they came down, these ten brothers minus Benjamin, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Those were the ones that got him in so much trouble with his brothers. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Not true. Your servants have never been spies. Also, probably not technically true. If you go back and you read the story of Dinah and Shechem, Um, also probably not true. Don't have time for that story today. He, Joseph, said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers. 
the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more, which is right in front of them. They don't know it. But Joseph said to them, it is, I, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. And so he's testing them. And then we have this interesting exchange that happens when we jump down to verse 21. And they said to one another, again, Judah has already had a moment where he has recognized, I've made some real mistakes. He's learning what it means to repent. He's learning what it means to understand what is true justice. He's learning what it means to take advantage of others rather than to look after the needs of others beyond his own. He is in a very worldly mindset and the events of his life are pushing him into these four themes that we've seen throughout these chapters. And Reuben answered him and said, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and he wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Now remember, Joseph doesn't know a lot, but he knows who said, let's kill him. And tradition tells us it's Simeon. So why did he choose Simeon? Probably because if this doesn't work out, I'm gonna Simeon's gonna pay. He's the orchestrator of this plan. He's going to pay. But yet he weeps because he sees in his brothers a willingness to take responsibility for their faults and what appears to be an entrance into a heart of repentance. Entering into God's story will always require facing our failures and committing to repentance. When we fail to come to the place of of admitting our failures and developing a heart of repentance, if we fail to do that, we will not enter into God's story and God will not enter into ours. Repentance is so crucial to recognizing God's doing something And I've been doing something else. But I want to do the thing God is doing. And for them, a good part of that is that first theme that we saw in Abram's life, which is value others and do for others even when it costs you something. The whole love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus says is the second most important thing past loving God. Entering into God's story will always require facing our failures and committing to repentance. Story goes on, Joseph gives them grain to take back, puts their money that they they were supposed to pay for the grain back in their bags without their knowledge, and they return home without looking in their bags. And then the story picks up in verse 29. It says, When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us, talking about Joseph, and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. And they're not. 
We have never been spies, and they probably have. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, yeah, because of us. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, talking about Joseph, by this I shall know you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go on your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, Jacob's favorite one, because God is still working on Jacob. Jacob's story is not over yet. Even though he's old and he's tired, God's not done with Jacob because Jacob needs to learn to enter the story even at the end of his life. Verse 34, bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid because they've just stolen from Egypt, they think. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. And now Simeon is no more. Like they know you stole from them. And and now they're going to kill Simeon. So now I've lost two brothers. You want me to give you a third? Forget it. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, interesting, Reuben's back in the story. Reuben, firstborn, he's the one who said, yeah, just throw him in the pit. Let's not kill him. And then he wanted to come back later and rescue him. And so, you know, maybe don't come home for a while, but you're okay, go on. You know, here's some money. But he goes back and he's already been sold. He's like, what am I going to do now? Reuben comes to him, who has two sons, and he says, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. You know, I'm pretty sure you're never going to have to make this kind of a decision in your life. But you're going to have to make one like it. There's going to come a time when you're going to have to say, I want to be a part of what God is doing in this world. And it's going to cost me something. But what God is doing in this world is more important than what I want to do in this world. And it is such a good thing that I will do it. And we see Judah is coming around to this story. Now we see that Reuben is coming around to this story. But that still leaves eight other brothers that have not yet come around to this story. Jump down to Genesis chapter 43, verse 1. They come back. And they're like, I don't know how this is going to go. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought... From, bought from Egypt, or brought, they didn't buy it, because they gave them their money. Joseph was did that, by the way. They didn't steal the money. They did it. The men solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, he's back and forth, talking about Jacob and calling him Jacob or Israel. Israel is his new name. Israel is his name following in the legacy. Jacob is his name. He's a screw-up, pushing against God, wrestling. Have this back and forth. Sometimes we call him Jacob. Sometimes we call him Israel, where it appears that when he's called Israel, he is fully living out God's story. Therefore, using the name God gave him. Verse 6, Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to as to tell the man that you had another brother. They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? 
because she knows he do. What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, now this is Judah, Reuben's already said, I will go and if something happens to Benjamin, I will trade my two sons for him. And now Judah steps in, the second brother who tried to step in on his behalf. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will rise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. He says, I will be a pledge of his safety. He's talking about his life. If something happens to Benjamin, the same thing will happen to me. I will trade my life for Benjamin's life, which is very different from everything else we've seen in Judah to this moment. He's entering into God's story. He's seeing there's a way to live life. I will be a pledge for his safety, verse 9. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice because it's been a while. Now the rest of the story goes, they come back and there is this magnificent reunion. And eventually Jacob comes back with him they recognize everything. Jacob, or Joseph breaks down and says, hey, I'm the lost brother and I forgive you and come in and we're going to be one happy family again after the brothers go through a time of admitting their sin, repentance, entering into God's story again. There's a better way to live life. And in many ways... What I think we should take out of the story is not just how they ended up in Egypt, but we should take away the story that Judah's life took entering into God's story, the story that Reuben's life took entering into God's story, the story of Jacob's life entering into God's story, the story of the other brothers entering into God's story. And in this story and throughout all of Genesis, we see these four themes that should be the four themes of our lives today. Judah was willing to learn from his mistakes. Are we? I see people so many times, they make a mistake and they commit to that mistake. They'll never admit it was a mistake. They will just, even if they don't ever do it again, they will never say, I should not have done that. And they perpetually live in those mistakes. Regularly repeating them. Like I would say the vast majority of people in the world live that way. My mistakes... Maybe they are. I don't care. But Judah was willing to learn from his mistakes. Judah became willing to put others before himself. First with Tamar, and then with Benjamin. He became willing to put others before himself. Judah became willing to follow God when he entered into the story God was telling. Not just the story he wanted his life to tell. And yet we still see God is still faithful to this family and to Judah, even when Judah was not faithful. We see these things over and over again. So the question is, am I willing to put others before myself? And if the answer is no, you're not in God's story. You may be on a path towards God's story, 
But you are not living God's story if you are not putting others before yourself. This is the most basic teaching throughout all of Scripture. Jesus hammered this home over and over and over again. He demonstrated it over and over and over again. There is a path of following God and following Christ that is about putting other people in a place above ourselves. It's the way we love. It's that spirit of generosity and hospitality that we saw in Abraham and in Isaac. It's that willingness to really sacrifice for for the needs of others, which is so against the grain of our current culture, which is we're trying to get everybody else to give us what we want. I want to leave you with two things for this series. And I honestly would like a little credit from some of my uh, uh, people who thought I couldn't get through that much scripture in that short amount of time. I was pretty good, wasn't it? Like, you, I heard some people sighing when I said we're going to cover all this. I heard it. So I'd like to some credit for getting through that much scripture. That was a lot. And that was hard for me. I put you above myself, right? I mean, that's not really what happened, but that's my story. That's what I'm sticking with. There are two things I want to wrap this whole thing up with, and I want to leave you with because I don't want you to leave you going, that was really interesting. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Because if that's the way you leave, um, you are no closer to entering into God's story because you know a story. What are you going to do with this story? That's the question. And I've come to two things that I want to share as closing out that I think if we will embrace this idea of what I think are some of the two most important things, not only in this story, but this whole story, um, because as I said at the beginning, I'm tired of church stuff. I have been for a long time. Tired of the programs, tired of the expectations. I'm tired of the thing. We just got to have people to make this happen. I'm tired of that. You know what I still love is experiencing God. And that's why I keep doing the things I do. That doesn't mean that churches shouldn't do stuff, by the way. Like we just sit around and go, oh, God's so good. And that's it. Because that is not a picture of the church the way Jesus talks about it. But Jesus describes the church much more as an active part of the story than just a place we go on Sundays. And I can't just do the thing where we go to the place on Sundays anymore. I haven't for a long time. But if you're not going to do that and you're going to enter in and you're going to embrace a bigger story, these are the two things I'm going to leave you with. The first one is this. God is doing something bigger than you or me. I'm going to go to meddling. I've been doing some meddling the last few weeks. You know, we go to do some meddling here. If your involvement with Christ is to go to heaven when you die, you believe the story is about you. God did all this for you. So that when you die, you have this streets of gold and crystal sea and gates of pearl and no more problems. And, you know, if Jesus is there, fine. And if he's not there, fine. I still get all the other things I want, which is life works out the way I want it to. This is the Western gospel that is false teaching and has, I've embraced it at times of my life. The story is so much bigger than us. The story was not about Abraham, but Abraham was a crucial part of the story. The story was not about Isaac, but Isaac was a crucial part of the story. The story was not about Jacob, 
Jacob was a crucial part of this story. It was not about Joseph, even though Joseph is a crucial part of the story. It was not at all about Judah, even though Judah was a crucial part of the story. The story is not about us, but we are a crucial part of the story. And we get to choose whether we're going to enter into that story which transforms lives, which has been going on since the beginning of creation. This is going to go on until Jesus returns and there's a new heaven and a new earth. We're either going to be a part of that story. If you remember when we talked about the fall, we go back to right at what did God do when we were no longer at the place He wanted us to be? He asked two questions. Do you remember what those two questions were? We found those through chiasms. The first one was, what was it? Where are, thank you, where are you? Because God wants us with him. And the second one, when he asked, you know, how did you come to this place where you are? Do you remember what the second one was? Who have you been listening to? Because there are competing stories in life. And you may take a story that is not a worthy story to give your life to. But God's telling another story, and it is worthy not only to give your life to, Jesus gave his life for this story. The story is not about us. Now, I hope for heaven. Did my dad's funeral last weekend. A good part of my comfort and dealing with that is the knowledge that there is a heaven. (laughs) Like, my ability to just continue to do the things I've done over the last few weeks is in good part because I believe there's a heaven and that my dad is there. And that's where he wanted to be. And so that gives me, while I miss him, that gives me great comfort through this time. So it's not that heaven is a bad theology. But when that becomes the point, we miss it. Because what God is doing, God is redeeming the whole world He's asking these two questions. He's redeeming. This is what the story is about. I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world is what he says to Abraham. Do you recognize that God is still wanting to do the same thing through you? Not just make it to heaven. God's still trying to redeem the whole world and he's using the people that are a part of the story And if that is us, we are going to be a part of not just trying to get God to give us a life we want, but he's going to use us to redeem the world. And he is still asking these questions. Where are you and who are you listening to? Second thing. Go ahead. Second thing. God works with people who are needing a rescue and who are willing to live out the story. So if you're in need of a rescue, you're exactly the kind of person God wants to use. You're exactly the kind of person God wants to enter into your story. Because every one of us, if we're going to enter into the story God is telling, is going to require us to need a rescue. If we don't need a rescue, this is what happens if we don't need one. If I am not in need of a rescue, God becomes this thing that helps me when I need him, but I don't need him any of the rest of the time except when I need help. But when you're in need of a rescue, God becomes everything because he's rescuing you. I mean, I've hit it a couple of times. I just, one more time, just so I'm clear, over this series. 
The desire for God to give us what we want in our lives is not the story God's trying to tell us. Now, you could, you know, kind of make that work if the story we really want is to be the story God is telling. So much of our gospel today, so many of our fastest growing churches today, are the message is this. If you will just do this one small little minor thing, God will make sure you get everything you want. That destiny preaching. You've got a destiny. Now, in, inevitably, in almost every one of those sermons, destiny is completely up to you. God doesn't need to have any part of that whatsoever. Destiny is completely, whatever you want your destiny to be, God wants you to have it. And I've mentioned a few um, in the past that are even worse than just giving that message, the name it and claim it, faith movement. You want a new car? Claim it. God has to give it to you as if the only thing God does is, is a dispensary for all our wants. That's not who God is. That's not how God works. That's not the story we've seen throughout Genesis. God works with people who are needing a rescue and are willing to live out his story, and that is to redeem the world. That is why we come together. That's why we serve in youth or in children. That's why we go and we, we hand out food at the food pantry. That's why when we go to work, we do our jobs like we're told and we don't steal from our employers. That's why when someone's hurting, we stop and we listen. That's why when we drive down the road and someone is in need of food, we don't say, um, I'll pray for you. Be well. Be fed. I'm going to Outback. You know, we, we give them food. That's why Jesus says... If you give to the least of these, it's the same thing as if you're given to me. We looked at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we assumed that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is about sexual sin. It is a lack of generosity is why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed according to the text. They no longer cared for the needs of the least of these. And we talked about restorative justice. I shouldn't even brought that up. I need a whole other, I'm not even going to go into it, but you should go listen to that sermon talking about restorative justice versus punitive justice. And um, I leave all this, how I entered this sermon, and say, I want to see God do what only God can do in my lifetime and in this community. I cannot force God to do what I want Him to do. But God is telling a story and He's been telling a story from the very beginning and He's invited us into it. If we will enter into this story, if you're a person who's saying, I just, I just want to know that God is real, enter into His story and He will enter into yours. Yeah, but I've made so many mistakes. Well, I think we've covered a few of those today where God still entered into their story even after their mistakes. If you're thinking, I've been in church my whole life and I still wonder, is God real? I've been there. And it's only when I entered into his story that he became real to me. No matter where you are, this stuff is still real. It is still relevant. God is still doing the same things. We are still invited into the same work. And when you do it, you are not going to be welcomed by all your friends and neighbors. In fact, at times they're going to tell you you've missed it. They're going to get mad at you I found that when you follow the way of Jesus in the political world, people on the left and right get mad at you. It just happens that way. Just be prepared. 
And Jesus said, listen, you're going to be persecuted because of me. This is what he's saying. Like everybody's going to get mad at you at some point because they want you on their side. And we're invited into it. I encourage you if you're thinking, that's what I want. For me, it began with repentance and prayer. God, forgive me. And I don't know what you've got to do in my life. I don't know what I need to change, to be honest, but I know I've got to change something. Show me what needs to change and change it. I want to be where you are. I don't want to be somewhere you're not. God, if I want something and, I, and it's just about me, I need, I need to stop, but I don't know how I'm going to stop because I really like taking care of me. God, you can show me what I need to change. God, who is it right now in my life, which is how that, that prayer will always go for me, who is right now in my life that I've ignored their needs and I need to go take care of them. I need to call them. I need to help them. I need to feed them. I need to write them a check. I need to go uh, help them finish a project. I Whatever. Who in my life... like. I don't know who it is, but I think there are people around me who need me right now, and who do you want me to sacrifice right now to go help? Because if that's what it means to be in your story, I'm going to go do it. And I'm going to just tell you right now, you're going to go, and you're going to be like, I don't know, this feels so weird, and this is going to cost me. I'm not sure I want this to cost me, but I'm going to go do it because I want God to be a part of my story, and I just I want to be a part of this bigger story of redemption God's telling. And I'm telling you, when you do it, and you go, and you're like, God, you're here. You're here. My all I did was take a meal, but here you are. Oh my goodness, that is where the good stuff in faith is. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know who those people are for you, but you have them. You're surrounded by them. That's who I want us to be as a church. We can help each other do that. You're going to have a need that you can't meet alone. You're going to be like, I'm going to need some help. And someone else is going to be like, hey, I can help. And now the thing you didn't think you could do on your own, you don't have to do on your own because we do it as a body, as a community. I know I'm, I'm laying a lot of stuff down, but I believe this with all my heart. This is what I want us to be about as a church. God's still tell, telling the same story. We get to choose if we're going to be a part of it. All right? Let's pray.